This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Is your favorite book lover hard to shop for? Give the gift of TBR for Valentine's Day, Book Riot's subscription service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Choose from plans that allow your loved one to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email as a one-time gift or year-long subscription, and sit back while our bibliologists do the rest. When your recipient redeems their gift, they'll complete a profile to tell TBR about their reading preferences and what they're looking for, and they can even connect their Goodreads account. Then we'll match them up with a bibliologist who will handpick recommendations just for them. And there are options for every budget. Visit mytbr.co slash gift to sign up today and give your Valentine their own personal book concierge. And if you have to shop at the last minute, TBR can be delivered to your booth inbox on whatever day you schedule it for. That's mytbr.co slash gift. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow writer Alice Burton. Recording this week's episode on Saturday, January 29th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Okay, it feels boring to say tired because Indeed. everyone is tired. However, I had to have to say, I went to the chiropractor this morning, I was doing physical therapy, and I was like you know, I just feel like extra tired today. And then the guy next to me who was also doing physical therapy was like, I know, right? So Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. it's like a thing. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah, I can see that. It has been, again, it feels boring to be like, it's cold in January, but it has been really, really cold here. (laughs) And it just, it feels like really like January sort of like slapping you in the face and being like, you thought that it was like a new year and everything's exciting. No, it's frigging cold. Uh, So that's been hard to uh, deal with for me. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Um, well, I think Minneapolis, St. Paul got like, it was like negative mm-hmm. 25 wind chills. And then we got that one day, but it was only one yeah. day. Yeah, it's been sort of extended. And then we had this weird period where it like got up to like 30 degrees for like 12 hours. And then it plunged back down again. So it was like this 40 degree temperature difference over just a day. It was just, ugh, it's just been. It's a lot. Yeah, it's been a lot. So on the, on the plus side, I never feel like I need to go anywhere because I'm like, it's cold and there's still a pandemic happening, so I'm just going to stay at my house, which means I have gotten a lot of reading done in January, but and a lot of TV watching, if, if we're being honest about how things are, are going. Did I tell you I've decided that this is the year of the massive tome for me, book-wise? No, tell me more about this. I just, like, I started thinking about, I, I've been reading a lot more sci-fi fantasy, and then... Mm-hmm just some other like large books that I own and I've kind of been like more interested in settling in with like just a giant book and I was Mm. like you know what (laughs) I'm not gonna (laughs) I'm not gonna have like a number I think like especially during like these times having like a I have to hit this number of books for the year feels stressful so Uh it's more like observing what your reading patterns are and maybe kind of making it more like 
oh, like percentage wise, I should read more like authors of color or like more works in translation, whatever. Anyway, Uh but for me, I've been like, I would love to knock out some of these massive books that have been on my list that I never feel like I have time for. And this year, especially if I don't have like a set number, so I don't feel like, oh, I don't have time to read Uh those books. Uh Then I'm just like, I'm just gonna try to read however many giant books I can this year. Not like solely, right? Like I'll read other books, but I'm like feeling really excited about this as a as a generalized goal yeah that's a really fun idea i i don't know that like that i i will say i feel like my january reading i have been reading a lot but it's been a lot slower pace it feels like than it sometimes is other times of year like i they weren't huge chunksters but like they were longer and i was like really for a long time doing just like one book at a time and like moving through it and it was taking like a week and that pace has felt kind of nice too to just sort of be in the book instead of being like, all right, I got to finish this one so I can get to the next one. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's another good point about, you know, that kind of, I guess, mentality. I'm, I got halfway through Jonathan Strange last year and I (laughs) was like, that's so long. I know. And I've had it since 2000. When did it come out? I've had it since it came out, like 2003, 2005. So it's been a very long time. Mm -hmm. So I would love to actually finish it. And that one is like, you just have to like commit. Yeah. And there's just some others that I have. I, I've been – I just read the first, The Three-Body Problem by uh, Liu Cixin, and I want to read the other two, and those are, like, really big. And just, you know, so yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to look on my shelves and see, like, what nonfiction I have that is just, like, daunting looking. Ah. And I think it would be delightful to also get some of those out because uh, long nonfiction especially is kind of like, oh, my goodness. Although, yeah. as we have discussed frequently, it'll be, like, a lot of end notes. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you can kind of like take the page credit in your account, but like know that you didn't have to read all that notes <laughs> if you didn't want to. <laughs> I love that. But yeah, in terms of like long, even just like looking around my bookshelves, I, I've got Guns, Germs, and Steel, which, you know, that one I feel like you just have to commit to. And uh, I have SPQR by Mary Beard, which is about Roman history. <laughs> <laughs> sounds right i think it's more specific maybe but um i yeah. haven't read it yet so here we are yeah now i want to go to my shelves and see if i can find anything really big and chunky to try and read this year just to like just to do it i'll have to, I'll have to look and see what i can find that's awesome right and then you get to feel like extra accomplished i love that Our uh, our first sponsor for this week's episode is Book Riot's Other Podcasts. Uh, If you love this show, you are bound to love many of Book Riot's other podcasts. Check out our newest podcast, Adaptation Nation, for discussions of adaptations, both beloved and new. Subscribe to Red or Dead for updates on the world of mysteries and thrillers. Or download SSF Yeah for happenings and recommendations in sci-fi and fantasy. Don't miss When in Romance for updates on all things kissing books, or HeyYA for excellent conversations about young adult lit. We've got a show for everyone. Just go to bookriot.com slash listen for a full list of all our podcasts, or simply type Book Riot in the search bar of your podcatcher of choice. It will bring up the full selection of Book Riot podcasts. Your TBR and the podcast-shaped hole in your heart will be full. Happy listening. All right, so with that, we're going to jump into some nonfiction in the news. Just uh, headlines from the world of nonfiction. So, Alice, you have the first one, which is, I think, a follow-up to something we've talked about before. It is. So the winners of the 2022 Andrew Carnegie Medals for Excellence in Fiction and Nonfiction were announced, and uh, the actual celebration for that will happen in June, but the winners are always announced in January. So these are... Medals that are exciting because they are picked by 
librarians. So, you know, mm-hmm. like, who who better? <laughs> but the nonfiction winner is A Little Devil in America in Praise of Black Performance by Hanif Abdurraqib, which we've talked about a few times on here. Mm-hmm. And it's just been on so many lists this past year. So that's very exciting. Mm-hmm. And congratulations to A Little Devil in America. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, second one is uh, an announcement about an essay collection that's coming out later this year. Uh, David Sedaris is cut back with a new essay collection, um, which is, it sounds like a return to kind of what he normally does after his last couple books were like in a diary format or like edited diaries. And then um, one was kind of a best of anthology. This is a, a totally new uh, collection. So this collection of personal essays is called Happy Go Lucky, and it's coming out March 31st. And... Um, the cover, uh, we'll link to uh, Entertainment Weekly, which has a cover reveal. The cover is extremely creepy, uh, which I don't know that, like, I think of his covers as creepy, but also this feels like it kind of fits right in, so I don't know. But it's like this clown in a, like, creepy clown makeup holding a dog, and then there's a child next to him, like, staring at the dog, and the dog's, like, staring off kind of into the distance, and it's in black and white, and it's uh, it's very unsettling. So, oh, yeah, it's terrifying looking. <laughs> so I don't uh, – I don't know. Um, in the article, it says, Happy Go Lucky will chronicle Sedaris's own life and the ways we live now, pulling from his daily interactions and observations of seemingly ordinary moments that instantly turn absurd. And I, that's my favorite thing about David Sedaris is the way that he just like looks at the world and then just like sees absurdity in it and can really like pull humor out of otherwise ordinary moments. And he has a pretty, I think, clear vision of himself and isn't afraid to like point out areas in which like he's kind of off the rails a little bit. So <laughs> I'm really excited about this one. Yeah, I mean, it, it's when, I don't remember when Calypso came out, but it was quite a while ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like it's been a while since we had a new David Sedaris. So I'm a new, like, new, new David Sedaris. So I'm excited about that. All right. So with that, we will jump into um, books that – new nonfiction to the books coming out uh, in the last couple of weeks or coming up soon that we're excited about. And I, like, uncharacteristically, I think, have chosen two history books. And I, I, I picked them, and I didn't really, like, think about that until I sort of got into it because I was like, it's not my normal jam. But they're both really interesting, and I'm excited. So uh, the first one is called Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern by Jing Su, uh, which came out January 18th from Riverhead Books. Um, the author is a professor of East Asian Languages and Literature and Comparative Literature and Chair of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale. So I just put that in because that's like an impressive list of titles and uh, an interesting area to be working in. But anyway, so the the premise of the book or the question the book asks is, what does it take to reinvent a language? So China is a world superpower now, but with only within the last 100 to 200 years, it really wasn't. Um, According to the book, it was a crumbling empire with literacy reserved for the elite few. The Chinese, the spoken languages, were had tons of different dialects around different parts of the country. And so even like within the country, people could not really communicate with each other if they were from different regions. And then the Chinese written language was so complicated that only elite people who studied for years and years and years could actually like write it. And so there was just no way to really communicate very well across China with people of different socio- socioeconomic brackets. And so world at the time of the Chinese language revolution, like technology was changing and the world was becoming more advanced. But China was 
in a position where it was going to be left behind, at least because their language was so complicated and that it was just not accessible to most people. And so the um, book explores what it took to make the Chinese language accessible and how it that is tracked with sort of the growth of China as a superpower. So um, every chapter is about one aspect of how the Chinese language was modernized. So um, one of the early chapters is about how they settled on Mandarin Chinese as sort of the dialect that everyone would speak. And that would be sort of the official dialect of China, even though there were so many other different um, languages. There's one chapter about the invention of a Chinese typewriter and like how complicated that was because of how complicated the written language at the time was. And so what compromises needed to be made for that to happen, how they built the phonetic writing system that they use today, how they used coding to try and like advance the Chinese language and just how that advancement of the language is really deeply tied to the advancement of China in the world. And I love that this one is it's really, really accessibly written. She um, has a beautiful sense of detail and storytelling. So every chapter that I've read, there's a person at the center of it. And that person's story is how we move through this um, period of language development, which I really appreciate. And then I love that it's a history of China, modern China within the last 100 to 200 years, but that it has like this very specific lens, which I think makes it for me as a, a not typical history reader, like much easier to follow and like find my footing within. Um, so I just think it's it's fascinating and it's something that I had never really thought much about before, but now I'm very uh, into that. So Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern by Jing Su. Oh, that sounds so interesting. It is. It is fascinating. Gosh, I just feel like, you know, I remember high school history class and how you just don't learn about this kind of thing, or at least you did not in my high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and from what I've heard anecdotally from my friends. But then also, I guess even at that time, like it was a miracle if you made it to like World War One. I. I just remember my teacher, always, yeah. it was always like, oh, we ran out of time. And then there was the rest of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. But that was only talking about the West and not even like in detail for like anything in the West but America. So like I just yeah. don't there's just so much that has happened that I feel like I have no idea. Uh-huh. And so this type of book coming out in the West is very exciting to yeah. then be like, here's a huge thing that happened in China. <laughs> you had like totally revolutionized everything. Yeah, I had no idea that like the modern Chinese language was so new. Yeah, ditto. Or that like that its consistency and use across the globe was so recent. I had no idea. I'm going to be totally pivoting as usual (laughs) to talk about the book Cobalt, Cradle of the Demon Metals, Birth of a Mining Superpower by Charlie Angus. From the time I saw this title. (laughs) Great, great subtitle. I know. So good. I don't know anything about Cobalt, but I'm going to learn. And so I have. So... Cobalt has been around since, uh, quote, ancient times, and it was used, uh, it, there's like a very specific blue that can be derived from this. Uh, cobalt is a, an element in case you did not have to at any point memorize the periodic table. Uh, it's denoted by the symbol CO, and it can be found, uh, I think, only through mining. So the cobalt blue was used in jewelry and paint and uh, to sort of like work with glass. Uh, it used to be called Cobalt ore and this and cobalt was spelled K-O-B-O-L-D, which is from a, a Greek word, but we don't need to get into that level of detail. <laughs> um, but it meant goblin ore, like cobalt oh. ore, 
was Goblinor, which was because, and they talk about this in the book, that when there were sort of like miners in the Middle Age, they knew that demons were close from a burning sensation when they touched cobalt-laced rock. So it would be, yeah, it's just like, I feel like it's fascinating. So cobalt now is used in lithium-ion batteries, but also with uh, magnetic, wear-resistant, high-strength alloys, which means that in our current age of so much tech, particularly things like smartphones, uh, it's extremely valuable. So all of these tech companies really want cobalt. 50% of it is produced in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but this is connected with uh, the DRC, um, child abuse, Mm -hmm. environmental damage. Like, it's just, it's very... It's being called by human rights campaigners as the blood mineral of the 21st century, just due to all of these issues with the mining of it. Um, so because of that, uh, these companies that were like, okay, so maybe we don't want to, you know, be doing this in particularly, you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So let's see where else we can find cobalt. And they are putting a lot of money into Canada, which huh. is where the town of cobalt is, which is primarily what this book is about. <laughs> that was my long-winded way. <laughs> I'm getting back to that. So cobalt, there was a 20th century mining rush at cobalt. But as as they sort of like talk about early on in the book, indigenous people had already been trading in metals for thousands of years there. Um, So it talks about the theft of indigenous lands, the exploitation of the workforce, and the destruction of the natural environment. And he talks in particularly at the beginning about when you go to cobalt now, you know, it's kind of like a quaint, like, oh, this used to be like this mining operation. Mm-hmm. But like it, how, like the story that happened there, how all the like cobalt like mining happened, and then what is happening in Canada now with all of this mining, why why it's needed? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, mm-hmm. what can we do about this? Like, and I just feel like it's so fascinating because you're like, oh, gosh, like this <laughs> this metal that's very, like, precious and hard to get to. It's this integral part of these devices that we rely on. Like, it, mm-hmm. I would say they are almost indispensable to function in society yeah. now. So, you know, what do you do there when it's like, oh, but then it causes all of this damage. So I did not think that when I saw this title initially that it was going to be getting into all of that, despite the fact Uh that it says Cradle of the Demon Metals. But (laughs) I just feel like I've been more and more interested in this whole thing about, you know, like people talk about how the mining of elements for things like smartphones is very damaging. And I hadn't gotten really into the background of that. And this book is a good way of going into that, especially because it is very interestingly written. He tells a lot of good stories, but also, you know, making you aware of like what's going on with this. So that is Cobalt, Cradle of the Demon Metals, Birth of a Mining Superpower by Charlie Angus. That sounds really amazing. And yeah, great subtitle, but then like different book than it seems. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Really good pick. All right, so my next one, I think maybe maybe is related in the idea of, like, the impact of human uh, consumption on the globe. It's called Worn, A People's History of Clothing by Sophie Thanhauser, which came out uh, January 25th from Pantheon. And so this is a social history of clothing. So uh, Thanhauser uses... She decides to focus on five different types of cloth, linen, cotton, silk, synthetics, and wool, to talk about the clothes we wear, where they came from, and how 
the the role of clothing and the way that clothing is made and the way that clothing is consumed, the way that clothing is disposed of has changed over time. And in the introduction, she makes this really fascinating point that is super obvious, but when I read it, I was like, oh, duh. She asked basically, like, why is it that the cost of a car or a truck has gone up a huge exponentially since cars and trucks were first invented, but the cost of clothing has just gone down and down and down and down to basically nothing compared to how expensive and durable and tough clothing used to be. You know, like people back in olden times had very few items of clothing and they were very carefully made and all of that. And the book is basically trying to explore that, like how has clothing and our relationship to clothing and the production of clothing and cloth changed over time. And so um, she starts with linen and looks at kind of how linen as a fabric evolved and then goes through each of these types of fabric to look at how clothing manufacturing and consumption has changed over time. And part of the exploration of the book is how the clothing industry has become one of the planet's worst polluters, both in how cloth is made and then how it is uh, disposed of and thrown away because it is very consumable now, but not disposable, I guess, and how it relies on um, underpaid and exploited laborers because despite all of these advancements, like clothes still need to be sewn together. Um, And so she then in the the wool chapter gets into sort of how we're kind of in some ways returning to older uh, types of clothing production and examples of how people are sort of like trying to move away from fast fashion and some of those other kinds of things. So I really like this one. It's really personably written. She has, um, it's a little bit memoir in that she sort of uses some of her own um, experiences as a person in the fashion industry and as a consumer of clothing to talk about this, but also it's like super meticulously reported. Um, There's a lot of history. There's a lot of like firsthand reporting of going to places and talking to people. And uh, it's just, it's really, it's really fascinating. Um, And I think kind of fits in with maybe the general thing we've been talking about, about like slowing down and like really understanding something. Because I think that this book is sort of a, a call in some ways to like slowing down and like thinking and being more conscious and intentional about fashion and clothing and all of that. So super interesting. Worn, A People's History of Clothing by Sophie Thanhauser. I saw that as a, a book that was coming out, but I, I hadn't looked into it. So thank you for talking about it. I feel like I guess because of all the conversation around fast fashion, I've been noticing more what clothing that I look at is made of and Mm -hmm. veering more and more away from which – okay, so things like polyester and nylon, I did not realize are basically plastic, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, like I'm wearing plastic clothing, (laughs) which especially reading stuff like that wonderful history of sheep that I read last year, Follow the Flock, when it talks about the properties of things like wool – it's like, oh, like this, this, like if you wear clothing made out of actual fibers, then mm-hmm. it has all of these amazing properties and things that it can do for you and it will last longer and all this. All that to say, of course, it is, it is a privilege to be able to buy things because yeah. those tend to be more expensive. Um, mm-hmm. The trade off being that they last longer, but also you do have to do an upfront payment. Yeah. So mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, that's just not possible, which is yeah. another way that. Poor people get screwed over. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Because then you have to like answers. pay more like in the long run by buying like the same thing over and over again as opposed to having like something that's going to last 20 years. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, it's just I think it this kind of book sparks some really good conversations and I'm excited it's out. Yeah, definitely like not easy answers to any of these things given the like 
larger socioeconomic like situation we all find ourselves in. Exactly. Uh, let's talk about Vikings. Yes. <laughs> so do it. I picked River Kings, A New History of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads by Kat Jarman, partially because I follow a lot of historians and archaeologists on social media, and this came out first in the UK, and I saw people chatting about it and saying how great it was, so I was watching for it to come out here, and I was very excited. Kat Jarman is a bioarchaeologist, so uses cutting edge forensic techniques to look into, you know, like the history of Vikings uh, uh, in Britain, which I think they were mainly first, co- oh, I think 793, right? With like, I think that was like their first kind of attacking of like the islands. And yeah, then- I have no idea. Oh. <laughs> learn about 793 anyway so uh basically the late 8th century and then throughout the 800s um until they were repelled and then they came back for a bit but basically vikings were in and out of the british isles (laughs) around that time so jarman looks at teeth that are over a thousand years old and can from that can like extrapolate like childhood diet and so where a person was likely from which is amazing and the times we live uh-huh. in now uh, are terrible in some ways and miraculous in others. So um, also, you know, obviously using things like radiocarbon dating can uh, figure out a death date within a few years. So with these types of things, um, there are, you can sort of like figure out more about the stories of people from the past, which I love. So this book is set up around Uh, an object and its journey. So this is a carnelian bead that was made in India and its journey to England, more particularly in Derbyshire, which, yes, is talked about in Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) So just like, oh my goodness. Uh, It's just very exciting. So the way that uh, she uses this object to kind of like describe the not only the trading route and, you know, things like the Silk Road and how things made it, but also things like – talks about how the there may have been a slave trade running um, through the Silk Road to Britain uh, because with the Vikings, there were people from the Middle East. And, you know, like we find all of these uh, very – you expect it to be this, you know, like blonde-haired Viking based on – illustrations and tv and movies but Uh there were a bunch of like different types of people from different places that were coming with the vikings or who were vikings um so i think that this kind of thing i just love it especially i love object-based stories and Uh so the fact that she centers it around this bead you know it's like so tiny but it tells the story so I just, I really love it. Um, again, this is River Kings, A New History of the Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Roads by Kat Jarman. That sounds really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, and I I love the, man, the job bioarchaeologist just sounds so cool. Can you imagine getting to say, oh yeah, I'm a bioarchaeologist? I know. That'd be so cool. Man, should have gone to school for something different. <laughs> 
Um, I have two real quick mentions I wanted to just throw out there. And these are both ones that, like, were not on my radar at all, but I saw them, I think, on, like, book Twitter. And I was like, that sounds really interesting, and I just want to mention them. So the first one is Architects of an American Landscape, Henry Hobson Richardson, Frederick Law Olmsted, and the Reimagining of America's Public and Private Spaces by Hugh Howard. And this is a dual biography of America's first architect, Henry Hobson Richardson, and one of our country's best landscape art designers, Frederick Law Olmsted, and how the two of them like had a big impact on the way that the United States is built inside and outside, um, which my sister's an architect, so that was one of the other reasons this one kind of popped on my radar that seemed interesting. Uh, and then the second one is called Seven Games, A Human History by Oliver Roeder. And I love uh, books that are like history in these kinds of specific objects or something. And so this is a biography of seven enduring and beloved games and the story of why and how we play them. And the games are checkers, backgammon, chess, go, poker, scrabble, and bridge. Uh, and that just sounded sounded fun. That does sound fun. Let's talk about our second sponsor for the episode. It is Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad, the Young Readers Edition from Sourcebooks. Me and White Supremacy has reached so many adults in their journeys to become better ancestors. This edition aims to teach young readers how to explore and understand racism and white supremacy and how they can do their part to help change the world. It covers topics such as white privilege, white fragility, racist stereotypes, cultural appropriation, and more. Leila Saad has developed a brilliant introduction and deep dive that is sure to become a standard in anti-racist education. This Young Readers Edition uh, will teach teens and preteens how to dismantle the privilege within themselves and others so they can stop themselves and others from inflicting damage on people of color and in turn help other white people do better too. The new updates include definitions and histories for various topics covered, uh, let's break it down sections to help readers process complex topics, questions at the end of each chapter to recap, reflect, and respond, and uh, instead of in the adult version, there is a 28 day challenge. So and here it is, uh, the work can be done in the reader's time frame. So it's more sort of adaptable. Um, the content is approachable for those with and without white privilege. So it's sort of like a, a wide span there. And again, this is me and white supremacy, the young readers edition from source books. Thank you for sponsoring. Oh, that's exciting. I'm glad they're doing a young readers edition of that book. That is cool. Well, and so for some of us, sometimes the adult version is too hard. <laughs> and so <laughs> I appreciate having a young reader's edition. So yeah, I'm I'm extra excited about this one. Yeah. Awesome. And that actually ties in pretty well with our uh, theme for this episode. Um, February is Black History Month. So we thought we would start out, since this is coming out first of February, with just some reads you can pick up for Black History Month. Um, so pretty straightforward. So my first pick is uh, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, which is a 1963 set of essays that are, I think, considered a classic in Black literature. I picked it up, uh, at least in part, because it lets me finish one of the read harder tasks for this year, which is to read a classic written by a person of color, but also because I don't remember ever reading it, and I feel like it is just a, a good, like, foundational text to have a reference to, given, and it's ref it's referenced all the time in contemporary, uh, writing. So, The Fire Next Time is two different letters 
that were written. Um, they were originally published as two separate magazine pieces in 1962, I think, in two separate magazines, and then put together in 1963 and published. And so uh, the first one uh, is called My Dungeon Shook, A Letter to My Nephew on the 100th Anniversary of Emancipation. And uh, it is about, it's a, a letter about like the central role of race in American history. Uh, and then the second longer essay is called Down at the Cross, Letter from a Re- Region of My Mind, which is about the relationship between race and religion and Baldwin's experience in a Christian church and then later his experience trying to understand ideas about Islam from other people in the community of Harlem of where he lived. And I also, when I was doing a little bit of background research, found out that there is a two, an audiobook edition of this. It was came out in 2008 and it's narrated by Jesse L. Martin, which uh, sounds pretty great. So the the purpose of the, the affair next time was about trying to reach a white audience and help them better understand the experience of black Americans and the struggle for equal rights. Um, and so they're very much like a testimonial and a storytelling. Like he is telling about his own experiences of how he has been impacted by racism and white people in America and how it has affected other people that he knows. And they're, they're just like, they're very evocative and, um, it's really like a slim book, so you can sit down and read it, but it, it feels like something you read slowly, like to try and really savor each sentence because there are many really beautiful ones and then also many very like pointed ones um, that I think it's important to like sit with and sort of um, try to try to take in and understand what he is trying to um, articulate to people and what he is trying to make you like feel and understand through this kind of testimonial um format and the letter format is really personal and kind of straightforward like that. And I also think this one's fascinating because it is an inspiration for or it is embedded in like the the thinking of a lot of other like contemporary books. So like for example Between the World and Me by Tanahasi Coates, uh, that is written as a letter which is uh, kind of parallels or similar to the first letter of this book. And then there was an essay collection that came out a few years ago, The Fire This Time a New Generation Speaks About Race by Jasmine Ward or edited by Jasmine Ward which is a collection of like poems and essays reflecting on this Baldwin book and then also sort of the past present and future of race in the United States. So it just, it connects to a lot of different things and I think is still relevant and interesting piece of writing to pick up. So that is The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. So I read this in, I believe, 2017 and then Mm. picked it up again at the end of last year. So last month. And was um, what was interesting was I was reading it on Kindle both times. So I had my highlights from 2017. And Ah. then I highlighted in a different color this time. And it it does seem like a book that benefits from multiple readings. Agreed. Yeah. And just, you know, what's going on in the culture that you just read it differently, depending on that. It was a very different experience this time from 2017. Mm hmm. And one of the I was just looking at my the things I highlighted. And one of them is he says, what it comes to is that if we who can scarcely be considered a white nation persist in thinking of ourselves as one, we condemn ourselves with the truly white nations to sterility and decay. Whereas if we could accept ourselves as we are, we might bring new life to the Western achievements and transform them, which I was like, yeah, (laughs) Like, I have nothing more eloquent to say in addition yeah. to that. Just like, wh- I mean, one observation of, of course, many in this pretty short book, yeah. but just how it's this idea, right? Like, it's kind of like, not only does racism hurt everyone, like also, you know, like patriarchy hurts everyone. And like these systems where it's like, oh, the people who are, you know, in the position of power think like, oh, no, I'm doing really well from this. But like, everyone is hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, 
it's it's a really good good uh thanks for picking it camp <laughs> yeah you're you're totally right it's a book that you could read many different times and take many different ideas from because it is so expansive in a very small package yeah um uh, my first pick for this section is overground railroad the green book and roots of black travel in america by candace e. taylor this was the first book to explore the historical role and residual impact of the green book which was a travel guide for black motorists this started being published in 1936 and it went until 1966 and was called the black travel guide to america because for African-Americans, particularly, you know, like driving through America, pre-internet, obviously, you did not know what place was going to be safe. So this included hotels, restaurants, gas stations, and just these other businesses that were white owned. And frequently, like, you know, it was like, not only were you not it was kind of like, which one were you allowed to sleep in, you know, due to segregation laws? But then also, I think maybe more importantly, which ones were safe for you to stay? Because mm-hmm. even if it was like technically allowed, was it still a safe space? Which is just, oh my gosh. Anyway, so the Green Book was invaluable for that reason. And so being called the Overground Railroad, uh, that feels like a clear parallel obviously but it celebrates the stories of those who put their names in the book and stood up against segregation but also talks about the history of the green book and how we arrived where we are now and what else we have to do regarding race relations in america which i feel like the green book i had never heard of it until a few years ago and then I've seen, I know at least one other book came out about it in the last few years. And then I think there was also either a series or a documentary that came out. Kim, do you know what I'm talking about? I wanted to say that I'm not sure. Are you thinking of The Green Mile? No, it's that one. It was new and it was a guy driving another guy around who was a musician. No, you're talking about the, or there is a 2018, I just looked this up. There's a 2018 biopic set in so it's 1962 but it, oh it's a true story but it's about the african-american classical and jazz pianist don shirley and then this italian-american bouncer who's yeah the that one Tony that Lip. people pan yeah, yeah who was shirley's driver and bodyguard and it's named after the green book so yeah <sighs> okay so it's a film and it stars Viggo mortensen and mahershala ali and Linda Cardellini, which, goodness gracious. But yeah, so that came out uh, three and a half years ago and is related to this book that I'm talking about. So glad we figured that out. <laughs> we got <laughs> yeah. there eventually. But yeah, so again, the book is Overground Railroad, The Green Book and Roots of Black Travel in America by Candace e. Taylor. Yeah, I'm glad you talked about that one. I remember a couple of books that came out at about the same time as that movie talking about it. I, re- I feel like the movie did not get it won awards but people are not particularly impressed with it but i think this book sounds great so maybe read the book for <laughs> yeah read, read these books instead that's a great one <laughs> all right so my second pick is called white negroes when cornrows were in vogue and other thoughts on cultural appropriation by lauren michelle jackson uh, which is a 2019 book from beacon press uh, and part of the reason i grabbed this one is because i'm trying to read more books that are like on my shelves right now and this one is and i've been meaning to read it so i was like ah yes i will read it for the podcast and then i will get to talk about it so uh, jackson is an assistant professor of english at northwestern university and she's a contributing writer to the new yorker she's a cultural critic and so this book is all about 
how cultural appropriation has worked and uh, looking at how people who have appropriated black culture have benefited from that appropriation and how the people, the black people who originated those pieces of culture have not, and in some cases are then punished for it. And so she um, looks at black culture from music, fashion, activism, language, and the how people are allowed to sort of thrive or not thrive from taking on a black culture from those areas. So she looks at how cultural appropriation is a, quote, a blueprint for taking wealth and power and ultimately exacerbates the economic, political, and social inequity that persists in America. And so she looks at a lot of like celebrities and memes and songs and different pieces of culture and how appropriation has worked in those spaces. So um, the chapters are called things like The Pop Star, Swinging and Singing, The Meme, Kermit the Frog Meets Nina Simone, uh, The Chef, America's White Face Mammy. And so all of these things, she kind of looks at white people who have appropriated black culture and what the impact has been on them and what the impact has been on other black people in culture who either also hold on to those attributes, but then are somehow often punished for continuing with them versus white people who take them on and who are then celebrated. And it's just a really, it's really wide ranging, which I appreciate. She has a very like, obviously like a critical eye for pop culture and the way that black culture is absorbed into it and then spit back in weird ways. And um, just like, exploring the contradictions that come up with all of that. And so I think it's just a really interesting, there's some history embedded in a lot of it, kind of talking about how different aspects of black culture have evolved before they become appropriated by white people and white culture. And just, so just really fascinating and like really has a, a wide range of different culture that she's looking at. It's not just movies or music, it's all sorts of different things. So it's super fascinating. White Negroes, When Cornrows Were in Vogue, and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation by Lauren Michelle Jackson. That is fascinating. And also, you know, it's from Beacon Press. Beacon Press is amazing. Mm -hmm. And this kind of thing, I feel like it reminds me of, this is a very, like, white person thing to say, but it reminds me of Dreamgirls. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I'm talking about? Where it was like, only in a, I get, when they talk about one of the characters, because I don't know the characters' names because I'm not as familiar with the musical, but one of the characters has, like, this, like, awesome song, and then they show it basically doing going through this whole, like, translation process where it's, like, sung by white pop singers and they make it, like, mm-hmm. bad, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, just, like, stealing it and being like, well, we liked that, so we're going to take that and then have it, you know, perform it. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I remember when the idea of like cultural appropriation started to become more mainstream and just made uh, hopefully a a lot of people start thinking more about like what we were doing and where things were coming from and what was maybe not a thing that should be done (laughs) anymore. Mm -hmm. So yeah, any kind of actual kind of dive into this, A+. Okay, I am ending on a dual biography because I love dual biographies. It just feels like uh, two birds, one stone. <laughs> just getting more knowledge in the old brain. So, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. by Peniel E. Joseph. Uh, Joseph has been writing about Black history uh, for quite some time, but also founded the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy at Tufts University, and now teaches at the University of Texas at Austin. But in the dual biography of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, what I think is most interesting and probably the reason to look at this is most 
people will be like, oh, well, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And they existed at the same time, but had these opposite philosophies. And his point is they didn't, like, not necessarily. Like, obviously, they existed at the same time, but <laughs> their philosophies mm-hmm. were not as opposing. And it says in the 1960s, they began to, you know, sort of uh, appreciate the other one and what they were doing while maybe not being as on board with the the tactics they took to make those like sort of philosophies and, and ideas come to be. But it the book really does a lot with the comparison, right? It's not just like half is about Martin Luther King Jr. and half is about Malcolm X. It's like very like this is comparing them like interwoven throughout, which I really love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that kind of thing. So if you are interested in sort of finding out not only more about both of these figures, but how maybe the popular idea of them and their relation to each other has been misconstrued, uh, this feels like an excellent book for that. So again, that is The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. by Peniel E. Joseph. That is another really, yeah, love a dual biography and especially like one that takes people that you have an idea of because these are two like figures that do get taught more than other historical black figures, but then like lets you think about them in a new way. And like they're not just opposing sides, but people who really like existed contemporaneously and were influenced by each other. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Awesome. So there's there's um, a variety of different books that you could consider picking up for Black History Month. Obviously, there are tons and tons and tons of others, but that's a little snapshot. Uh, And we will now close the podcast as we normally do by talking about the books we're reading uh, right now. Uh, And so actually, I'm going to talk about one that I just recently finished because uh, it was really really good, but also really like weird. Um, It's called The Sentence by Louise Erdrich, which is fiction. And it is a book that I knew when I picked it up that it took place over, like, the pandemic period. It takes place between, like, two, 2019 and 2020, late 2019 into late 2020. But I, like, didn't – I don't know. I just forgot that as I was reading, and it was very strange – a strange experience. But anyway, the premise of the book is that um, it takes place at a bookstore in Minneapolis, which Louise Erdrich does own a bookstore in Minneapolis, so it's kind of meta in that way. And uh, one of the customers of the bookstore dies and then starts to haunt it. And so the main character of the book, this woman named Tookie, is kind of the only person initially who, like, can – knows that the ghost is there. And so it's about her trying to, like, figure out why the ghost is in this bookstore and what she can do to try and help her, like, move on. And then – she it's about like native history in Minnesota and the experience of native people in Minnesota. Um, and then there's a chapter in the middle that's just called February 2020. And I got to that chapter and I had like a visceral gut reaction of like, oh, this is happening now. And then just it was just a fascinating reading experience because it takes place in the Twin Cities and is about like events in the last year that we all like haven't are still processing and uh, Louise Erdrich is a beautiful writer, and it's like a kind of a genre-y ghost story, but also like a bunch of other things. I don't know. It's just a super fascinating novel that I like. I'm still processing. I think the sentence by Louise Erdrich. Oh wow, you had a lot more to say about your book than I do about mine. <laughs> That's because I already read it, so I was like, <laughs> I was cheating a little bit. I 
uh, literally just started this last night, but I thought it was fun, so I wanted to mention it. It is Medicine in the Middle Ages by Juliana Cummings. Uh, it's the history of medieval medicine and uh, how these sort of ideas there were built on the knowledge of ancient Greek and Roman philosophers, because why not? <laughs> why not just go to them? Um, I'm really fascinated by medieval medicine and I, my sense is that Cummings is an author who just did a lot of research and doesn't necessarily have like training in this, uh, as an author, but you know, sometimes just compiling a lot of research can be fine. So Mm -hmm. I, I'll see how it is. I'm excited. But again, uh, medicine in the middle ages. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by the ever-patient Jen Zink. Thank you, Jen. Uh, And if you have a few minutes, we'd love it if you take time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify so that people can find us more easily. And then while you're there, you can follow us so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, With that, I'm Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.